The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. If you would please take your Bibles and open to my favorite book of the Bible. What is it? Exodus. This is a favorite story of, of many. And maybe as we think of Exodus, this is a story that captured your imagination, maybe as a young person, and and it still can as an older person. Maybe if you sit back, you can visualize a flannel graph with scenes from Exodus or a a feature film about the story of of Moses. This is a, a story familiar to many of us. Maybe we can picture that baby floating in a basket down the river and that bathing princess nearby who secretly adopts that child and all the drama that's going on in there, or the the burning bush. Or we can picture that bad pharaoh and this bearded man from the wilderness who comes and confronts him. And this man has a, a staff that can turn the river into blood. It, it's a staff also that can 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 turn into a snake as he throws it down. It's a a staff by the power of God that can turn the water back on Israel at the Red Sea. It's a a staff that can draw water out of the rock for Israel in the wilderness. You can think of God's plagues, meditate on God's plagues to Egypt. That pillar of fire and cloud that guided them through their journey, the provision of Manna and the wilderness and quail and, and the Passover blood that was spread over the, the doorpost so that angel of death would pass over. You can hear the words in this book, I am, let my people go. You shall have no other gods before me. We read here of the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle. And taking off our sandals because we are on holy ground. You can feel the impact of God's glory at Mount Sinai, but also be impacted by the golden calf down below and sinners because we can identify maybe less with that glowing face of Moses and more with the grumbling Israelites. We need to sense that this is for us. Just as the New Testament says, this was written for our instruction, for our example, so that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is for us. It's been said, Exodus is an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. The adventure takes place under the hot desert sun, just beyond the shadow of those great pyramids. For Jews, it is the story of their, their existence, how they came to be. For, for Christians, it is the, the gospel in the Old Testament, God's first great act of redemption, which then fills out the rest of the Bible what redemption and ransom and deliverance and salvation is. It's the story that gives every captive the hope, free at last. And above all, the Exodus shows us there is a God who saves, and who delivers his people from bondage. What I just read is from Phil Riken, and he preached through the book of of Exodus, the year that James Montgomery Boyce died and began to preach it when he was ill, that great minister of the gospel in 10th Presbyterian Church. This is a, a book that should impact all of us. And last week we looked at the preface in verses 1 through 5, about Joseph's family and the providence of God and their story. Today, we're going to look at verses 6 through 16 and continue to introduce this book. Exodus 1, verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose... A new king 
over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they, this is Israel, were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. This is God's word. But in the first 16 verses, we don't see the word God. We don't see his name mentioned in the first part of the story. It is in many other places, but it may be that way as Moses writes this because Israel couldn't see his name, couldn't see his character in action, couldn't see what he is doing. He seemed absent, but he is faithfully. He's the great faithful one we sang about who is working behind the scenes in his providence, behind what is seen by the human eye. He's at work, and it's going to become evident. He is in charge. The ESV study Bible says of Exodus, the overarching theme of Exodus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And there's other things that flow out of that, but this is all showing us the fulfillment of God's promises in every part of the book. And we're going to see it here against wicked sin and a world superpower. We're going to see nothing and no one can thwart God's hand or stop God's plan. We're going to see God is the king above all kings. And he's the king even in suffering. No matter the opposition, no matter the obstacles, God's promises are unstoppable. We're going to see the unstoppable promises of God. But before we see that, let me pray for his help. Our God, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, that you would give us. And what we are not, that you would make us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. I want you to see, number one, God's promises don't depend on man. God's promises don't depend on man. This is number one. Last week we saw the story of Joseph and how undependable he and his sons were. But God is faithful to preserve them through Joseph. We saw that story. We also heard it read from Acts 7 earlier in our, our scripture reading. In verse 6, though it turns a corner now, and really these first few verses cover hundreds of years, maybe close to 300 years now. Verse 6 says, Joseph and that generation died. And, and the, the question when he dies, going back to the first part of those hundreds of years, did God, did God in his promises, did God's blessing... Did that promise die out with, with Joseph? Because it seems like Joseph is kind of who the story revolves around. Is, is his blessing going to die when Joseph dies? Verse 7, but, so Joseph died, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. 
If, if you are, have been reading through the Bible, if you've read through the Old Testament, you, you should recognize some of the language there. They were fruitful, multiplied, the, the earth was filled, or the land was filled with them because that's from Genesis language. And so flip back to Genesis 48. This is just three chapters before. And we're going to see his promise to Joseph through Jacob. Genesis 48, verse 3, is God Almighty speaking. And what we're going to see here is that the promise didn't die or depend on a human person. It depended on the divine persons and their character. Verse 4 of Genesis 48, he said to me, behold, this is to... To, he's speaking to Joseph. This is what Jacob was told. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and make you a company of peoples or a, a multitude. So Joseph's family, Jacob's sons, the, they would be the 12 tribes. They were going to be fruitful. They were going to be multiplied. There was going to be a, a multitude or a company of peoples from them. Fruitful and multiply right here are the exact same verbs that are used in Exodus one. Verse 7, as Joseph and all his brothers, Jacob's family, died, that generation died, it says, but they were fruitful and they were multiplying. Very same language showing that it was going to continue, and it was going to continue beyond Joseph's lifetime. They began to see blessing in, in that time. But this is also language that goes back farther in Genesis. God commanded Noah... Adam and then Noah with the, the same verbs in, in Genesis 9. He tells him to increase greatly. That's also language from, from Exodus. God commits, so he commands that, but God here commits to do that with Israel. His people to fulfill that mission from the beginning. At the end of Joshua, looking back on all that happened in, in the time of, of Moses and, and through to the promised land and all that, it says this, not one word of all the good promises that God made to Israel failed. They were fulfilled. They were fulfilled. And we can think also of, of Jesus saying, not one jot or tittle is going to pass away until it was all fulfilled. We, we see that happening in the beginning of the Bible. And also in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abraham, remember, go look at the stars. See if you can count those stars in the sky. He says, that's how many your seed or your offspring, your descendants will be. And then he promised him land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. And then he cut a covenant promise in blood with, with Abraham. And, and, and God alone passed through the animals as they're, they're cut and the blood is, is shed there. Sometimes with covenants with two parties, both of them would walk through together to solemnize the occasion. But God alone passes through in, in this visible glory. He passes through those animals while Abraham is a passive onlooker. And then he's passed out. But he, he hears this promise. And, and even that, that statement, the way God did it, is making the point, this is not dependent on man. This is not about you, Abraham. But I have a promise for you and your seed. And it's unilateral and it is unstoppable. And so let's remember, he's 90... He's coming up on 99 years old in Genesis 17. His wife has been barren for decades. But he hears God Almighty promise in Genesis 17 these words, I will greatly increase your numbers. I will make you very fruitful. I will multiply you exceedingly. That's the exact same language in Hebrews 1 verse 7. God is fulfilling that promise. Beyond Abraham's life. Abraham didn't see much of that. He didn't see any of that for another 20-some years after he got the promise. But, but it wasn't going to be dependent on man or man's timetable. We, we often want to see things quicker. We don't see things happening and we think God's not at work. But it would be many years before Abraham would have a, a single child. And it would be hundreds of years before these promises would be fulfilled just think about that. There's a lot of years that transpired without a lot of kids. It got off to a slow start, didn't it? Abraham, after a quarter of a century, has Isaac. Isaac has then Jacob and Esau, but Jacob's or Esau's not counted as a part of that covenant 
line of promise. And so if you'd been there in those generations, you might think, well, you know, what's we sing nowadays, Father Abraham had many sons, right arm, left arm. But if you're back then looking around, there's, there's not much to see there in his son or his grandsons. You know, I'm not real good at, at math, but that's not quite the number of stars in the sky. And that's not quite the number of sand in the seashore. And so if you were living in those generations with the patriarchs, you might wonder, is that, is that promise going to be fulfilled? I mean, there, there's Abraham's got the son, he's got these two grandsons, but one of them, you know, has, has left and We've heard Isaac has these, these promises, but you're not seeing a lot happening, and yet that's part of how God reveals himself here, that you can depend on me. I am going to fulfill my promises. I am the I am. Even when you can't see much, I am at work. God's specialty is small beginnings, which should be an encouragement to us. When things seem slow or things seem like, how can we in our small contribution make a difference? God, that's how he works. That's how his plan rolls. And so Exodus 1 then picks up the pace with Jacob's 12 sons. But then beyond them, there was exponential growth. There's, there's many kids and counting here. They're, you might say they're multiplying like rabbits here. And the Egyptians maybe are starting to wonder, is there something in, that, in the water over in that part of the Nile over there, over in Goshen where those Israelites are? It just seems like every time we go over there, there's just pregnant women all over the place. And then here a kid, there a kid, everywhere a, a kid, kid. It's what's going on. There's this population explosion. But what's going on is a promise fulfillment by God. And so number one, God's promises don't depend on man. But number two, God's promises can't be stopped by sinful man. I think I may have a, sl- a slide for this also. Number two, God's promises can't be stopped by sinful man. And let me just remind you what we read in Acts 7 in our scripture reading earlier. This is a, a spirit-inspired commentary on Abraham and how God promised to give. This is the language. He promised to give offspring after him, although he had no child, And it says this, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So there's that promise to Abraham, but the time comes, generations later, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. I think that language of of not knowing is is an intimate he didn't care for, he didn't, he didn't, he had obviously had to have heard about this great person in their past who preserved them, but he's, he's not acquainted, this is a new regime now, and there may have been things going on with the, the Hyksos and other dynasty changes, but he's, he's not going to relate to any old agreements with anyone named Joseph in this regime. We see that now when regime changes, they, they kind of cut ties with the past This king did not know Joseph, but it says this in Acts 7, God spoke to this effect, that Abraham's offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others. So this is is the promise. They're going to be sojourners in a land that belongs to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. This is the promised land of Israel. So there's promises all over that relate to this story here. They're going to be sojourners in another land that's not theirs. They're going to be afflicted. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But God's going to judge that nation. And they're going to come out of that nation. Then they're going to come and worship me. And they're going to be in this new land that I've promised. All of that's from Exodus 15. Both the Exodus and the enslavement were promised. And there was an end date. And in verse 8, that other king rises up who's not familiar with Joseph, not friendly to these Jews filling up his land, his kingdom. And so in verse 9, what we read of Exodus 1 seems to be in a government capacity. He's He's talking about these Jews who are too many and too mighty. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. 
as if he can stop God's plan. We need to do something here so they don't multiply. So they don't keep growing like this. So in verse 10, he wants to stop Israel from becoming a great nation. He, he wants to stop them from leaving their land. But that's the very thing that God promised in Genesis 15 and then in Genesis 46. And, and he even used the very same word to, to Jacob that they're going to leave. And it's the same word for leave or exit that he had, God had promised that. In verses 11 through 14, Egypt afflicts them and enslaves them, not realizing that the very words used here for the affliction and the enslavement, those are also the exact words used in the prophecy, fulfilling the exact words promised in Genesis 15. Pharaoh doesn't know it, but he's being used to fulfill prophecy, and he thinks hard labor is going to decrease Israel, but as he tries this, the the pregnancies and the moms and birth labor are actually increasing. His plan is not going to stop God's promise. We, you know, we sing standing on the promises. Pharaoh is standing against the promises of God the king, and he's not going to stand. And notice in verse 10, he wants to stop Israel from joining with Egypt's enemies. And even that word for enemies there is the same word in the prophecy of another to the, that God gave to the mother of Jacob. May you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. And God also uses that word in, in Genesis 22 to promise to Abraham his innumerable offspring are going to conquer his enemies. Pharaoh is unwittingly joining in prophecy, and he also joins in history with Genesis 11. I don't think he realized any of this, but Genesis earlier, after the flood, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and the sinful man at that time had, had a different plan. They wanted to stay at Babel, and here's what it says in Genesis 11, come, let us make bricks and mortar. Come, let us build ourselves a city, and, and let us Make a name for ourselves. Exodus 1.10 is the same phrase on Pharaoh's lips. Come, let us. And he's got, in verse 11, a plan to build for himself cities. And it even mentions brick and mortar. Like Babel. He's, he's wanting to make a name for himself over Israel and for his own kingdom. The the irony is Exodus 1 doesn't even give the name of Pharaoh. So you can read all kinds of scholars trying to figure out which Pharaoh this is. But I'm, I'm not even going to do that because the text doesn't do that. And, and the irony is Pharaoh's wanting to make a name for himself. And as Moses writes this story, he's not going to give the name of the Pharaoh. I think to make a point, there's a purpose in this. He wants his name to last, his name they don't even know for sure, even the best scholars. And God, back in Genesis, stopped Babel's sinful plan. But he had another plan in the process. He divided all of the people into languages. I think it's important for us to have the big picture, see how the, all the pieces fit together. He, he divides people into nations, into languages. He created at the Tower of Babel the Egyptian language is all, all these other languages as well. To, so these people would spread out and, and be with, with different groups who spoke the same language. But God has a, had a plan that he reveals right on the heels of that in Genesis 12 that he's going to bring all these nations back together. He says this to Abraham, Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the nations or all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. There's a plan for blessing for all those nations that are divided to then be reunited and to be blessed by the faith of Abraham in the God, the one true God. And in Exodus, that promise is fulfilled. Egypt dishonors the descendants of Abraham. And there's curse, there's plague that's going to come as a result in fulfillment to that. 
But we'll also see, and maybe some of you haven't seen this. I was just talking to someone the other day who, who saw this for the first time, that there's Egyptians who come to fear God. There's Egyptians who come to join Israel and join the faith of Israel in this story. There's other Gentiles in the book of Exodus who share the faith of Father Abraham. And, and the midwives are blessed with families here in, in verse 21. But the, the big picture is even what Pharaoh meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. Pharaoh meant evil, just like the end of Genesis. And that same pattern is happening. What he meant for evil, God means for good. And he's going to save many. And he's going to save some of those Egyptians as well. Sinful man can't stop what God promises. And when he tries, he just fulfills God's purposes even more. Pharaoh did not know of God's prophecies that he was fulfilling, most likely, as far as we know. He doesn't know of his own self-fulfilling prophecy in the end of verse 10, but at the end of verse 10, he's fearing the day that Israel might fight against us and escape the land. See that there? We'll turn over to Exodus 14. And that's the very word used twice, but not Israel fighting against them. It's actually God himself is going to fulfill what Pharaoh said, and he's going to use the very words of Pharaoh in his mouth. Look at Exodus 14, verse 14. This is what the Israelites are are told now. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord, this is Yahweh, will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. This wasn't their battle and their war against Egypt. This is the, the Lord is going to fight for you. In verse 15, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And, and, and we'll see that in future weeks. But God parts the Red Sea so that Israel can escape. The Egyptian army pursues. But then notice verse 25. God clogs, it says, the chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And listen to this. And the Egyptians said... Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. The the army said, I I know Pharaoh commanded us to go in there, but we got to get out there. We got to flee away from, we need to get away from Israel, not try to fight Israel, because Yahweh is actually fighting against Egypt. And so the Egyptian king said, Let us be shrewd with Israel, lest they fight against us and flee from Egypt. But now his army's getting shrewd, and and they're saying, let us flee from Israel because their God is fighting against us. Pharaoh didn't want Israel to escape, but now there is no escape for his army when the Lord fights against them, and the Lord is going to drown them all in the Red Sea. And so go back to Exodus 1. But the irony in all of that is Pharaoh's opposition has the opposite result that he intends. He doesn't want Israel to join those who hate Egypt or leave. And yet what he's going to do in this chapter is going to be the very thing that drives them to want to leave and and become enemies of them. And again, we see God's providence. Israel... You know, even them wanting to leave Egypt, even while they're leaving Egypt, they're thinking, oh, you know, shouldn't we maybe go back to Egypt? But it's, it's this, this slavery and all the oppression that he does that actually drives them to be willing to go in the first place. But Pharaoh, remember, he said, let's be wise. He's a fool through all of this. He, he says, let's stop them multiplying. Let's oppress them more. But Exodus 1, verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So Pharaoh wants Israel to dread his power. But verse 12 goes on to say, The Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so... They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service. We know how some of this looked from history, historical records. 
The slaves were organized into these huge work camps and concentrated in these labor camps. They were forced to complete these massive building projects, projects you can see to this day that exist, would have been built and built on the backs of slaves, all under the strict control of their masters. And so in inscriptions in the tomb of Rechmeyer at Thebes depicts prisoners from the land of Canaan, where Israel had come from, from that land. They're making bricks, they're hauling water, they're pouring clay, they're cutting bricks, they're hauling stacks of bricks at a work site, and then they're laying them with mortar, and they're supervised by these taskmasters with these sticks or these whips that are ready to beat them. There's, there's records come from some who would say, give me grain. They didn't give him grain, and then they, they brutalized him in front of his family and then drowned him upside down. These were some of the tactics that these four men used. And they were literally trying to break them down is the language, but all that they did could not break God's promises. And this should encourage us. God's people couldn't see what God was doing yet, but God was at work. And they couldn't see what was to come, but His promises were still at work. And so this takes us to a third point. God's promises defeat sin and Satan. God's promises defeat sin and Satan. I think as we come to the end of chapter 1, this is upping the ante here. And I think what we see here is no power of hell and no scheme of man is going to stop God's promised plan. And so Pharaoh is trying to make life hell for them. And when we get to verse 16, I think we need to recognize this is not just a scheme of a sinful man. There is a deeper darkness here. We try to kill baby boys on the birthing stool. This is, this is horrible to even think about. He's moving from enslavement to execution, order 66, if you will. Kill the kids. Oppression has turned to outright genocide. It's actually infanticide. Murdering infants. This is not just a struggle against flesh and blood. This is not just about a ruler in Egypt, there are spiritual rulers and authorities and powers at work. This is a spiritual warfare that I think we need to see for what it is because there's a promise in Genesis that makes sense of this that we need to look at. Turn back to Genesis 3. And remember, this is all part of the same scroll and the same story. And Moses is assuming you've read the first part. And this first promise would have stood out. Genesis One is actually the first time that fruitful, multiply, fill the earth language is used. But in Genesis 3, there comes this serpent into the picture. He's very shrewd. He comes to deal shrewdly with God's people. He comes to come against God's plan. And we know this is Satan from other passages. He brings sin into the world. And Genesis 3.15, though, is what I want us to see, where God talks to that ancient serpent, the devil, as he's called in other places. This is what the Lord says, Genesis 3.15, to the serpent, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, he says to Satan, and her offspring. And then notice the singular here now. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise that God makes. When the world first falls into sin, there's a promise of how sin and Satan will lose. But it's also a promise that drives all the other promises that are to come. Every other promise we've looked at or could look at has this behind it is what's driving redemptive history. In fact, I have a friend who taught through Exodus in a Sunday school class, and he says one of the things he did in his Sunday school class, he says, if I ever ask a question, you know, and you're not sure what the answer is, you know, you say Jesus, right? Well, he says, you can also try that. If I ask a question, you don't know the answer, say Genesis 3.15. Because in in essence, that is the, the framework that answers so many of the questions and points us to Jesus. And And what it does is it sets up this epic battle between good and evil, between Satan and the Savior who will redeem and who will defeat the enemy. 
So let's look at it. Verse 15 starts with the enmity between the evil one and the woman. So there's three layers of this. The first one is between the evil one and, and the woman. And then it adds this, and between your offspring, your Bible might have the word seed, and her offspring. So Eve, her first two offspring or children were Cain and Abel, right? Cain had such, even within that family there, there was enmity between these two offspring. Cain had this enmity towards his brother Abel that actually led him to to kill his own brother. Maybe he killed him to a a, a blow to the head. It doesn't tell us all those details, but he he kills him. He has this enmity towards towards his fellow offspring. And, And God is saying to Satan, between your offspring, who, who is, who's the offspring of Satan? Well, First John 3 actually brings in this story and says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And it's about righteousness. And it says in First John 3, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why was there such enmity between those two offspring is because he was of the evil one. He was of the evil one, and, and Abel was seeking to be righteous in his, in his sacrifice. So Cain was, as, as 1 John 3 says, part of the children of the devil. You say, what is it that would drive men to murder a brother or to murder a baby? It's not natural. There's something supernatural and satanic going on in that we need to see. So Jesus told the evil leaders who wanted to kill him in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. That's his M.O., and that's why there's such enmity between them and this Jesus who has been born of a woman. All of that starts back in Genesis. And we see it in Exodus. We see it in Exodus where Pharaoh lies. Pharaoh lies and says, if we don't do something with these Jews, they're going to they're gonna start a war against us. They're going to join our, our enemies. They're, they're traitors. We've got to watch out for those Jews. That's the father of lies. Behind that, we, I think the father of lies is behind Haman later in history, wanting to exterminate the Jews in Persia, and Hitler, and Hamas terrorists wanting to wipe out the Jews to this day. And Herod, we could see in New Testament times, this is devilish in verse 16. This plan to murder newborn offspring. But you know, it's no less satanic to murder preborn offspring either. And that is done today. Sometimes when they see if it's a boy or a girl. Not just in other countries, but even here in America. They can just see it in the womb now. They don't have to wait till it's born to see if it's a boy or a girl, but that's often a reason for killing a child. Sex selection, abortion, they call it. You've heard of partial birth killing. You're familiar with China's one-child policy that largely wiped out one gender for a generation. All of that has demonic roots. We need to see that. It's the father of lies that drives plans against parenthood with lies like this. This is just, this is just reproductive health care is one of those lies. We care. Those pro-life people, they, they just want to control women, and they, just, they actually want to kill women in back alleys. That's what their agenda is. That's the, the lying sort of thing that's been going on from the beginning, the murderer from the beginning. And it's horrible to even say, but as he moves people to crush unborn heads, we need to understand there is a day coming, and verse 15 says to Satan, there's going to be a day coming when your head is going to be crushed. And, and that's the translation for for. Genesis 3.15 in one Bible, but it also fits Romans 16.20 where Satan is going to be crushed soon underfoot. There's one to come in this promise here who would have the serpent wound his heel, but in return the devil is going to get a death blow, a, a headshot that will put an end to him. This is the one Kevin DeYoung calls the snake crusher. 
This is the one the Jews called the Messiah. And I want you to notice verse 15 ends with that singular offspring or seed. He will bruise or crush your head. There's a male child coming, born of a woman, is the promise. And he's going to deal a crushing defeat, even as the serpent is going to be biting back at the heel with deadly venom. A snake bite to the heel when there's deadly venom is a a serious thing, and it can be fatal as well. He's going to try to kill this Messiah, and he's trying to do it from the beginning of the Bible. This is the word in Genesis 15 where God promised this seed, this offspring, that promise keeps unfolding. And speaking of the plural seed and offspring coming through Abraham, that they would be afflicted in another land for 400 years, but that seed would grow and it would be fruitful and it would be multiplied as the stars in the sky. And you're not going to be able to wipe out a generation of any of them because there's a Messiah coming through these people. So Satan's, or the plan of Satan through Pharaoh was destined to fail. And that seed promise expands in, in Genesis 22. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so the big picture here is, is Jesus is coming for the world, not just for one nation, but for all of them, for us. And Galatians 3, then tying all that together, bringing into the New Testament, quotes Genesis 15. and says, whether you're a Jew or not, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Those promises are for you, Galatians 3, 8. The scripture, listen to this, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So Paul says that's actually the gospel preached to Abraham beforehand that all the nations are going to be blessed through you and through this seed and through who's going to come through this seed. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, quoting Genesis 22, and to seeds, with an S at the end, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. So these promises are going to come to a culmination in a singular seed of the woman who fulfills the promise for us. And Galatians 3 goes on to say that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so we get to stand as children of the promise too. By faith, we are Abraham's seed and heir to all of those spiritual blessings. Father Abraham did have many sons spiritually. And I am one of them, and so are you if Jesus is your Lord. Amen? We can do all the hand motions, but I won't do all that. That's the main point. If Jesus is your Lord, you're part of that family. This is our spiritual family story, too. We need to read this story. This is, this is our family heritage in, in, in the Lord and in the faith. The blessing of all nations in Israel, or through Israel, was always a part of God's multi ethnic family plan is what I like to call it. All of the peoples of the world. It's still the plan. The gospel was preached to Abraham in this and in Genesis 3.15. It's actually interesting. The gospel was first preached to Satan in Genesis 3.15. Adam and Eve heard, but he's, he's actually preaching this to Satan. And, and the New Testament talks about when he defeats him at the cross, he's actually preaching to, to those dark powers of darkness as well, preaching and proclaiming victory as well. But the promise was a seed of a woman will come. You may, Satan, pierce him on the, on the heel, which is what happened on the cross. And he did die from that fatal execution. But part of that promise there is that death is going to lose its serpent sting, if you will. Because he's going to rise and he's going to defeat you in the process. His wound to the heel, even his fatal wound, was not going to be permanent. He's going to rise And he's going to reign. And he defeats you in that process. Satan knew that promise. So Satan tries to kill the male seed. Here and later, the baby boys in Bethlehem. We need to understand, he is the cult leader of the culture of death. And people need to be rescued from that culture of death, knowing that this is not just a a flesh and blood thing. There is a, a cult leader behind all of that. And he is unmasked in the beginning of the Bible. And he's trying to defeat God's promises in that first book. 
In the first book of the New Testament also, we could look at what Herod did with other little he's and him's, little boys. But to the last book of the Bible, that enmity rages is Revelation 12 has this vision. And the language is, is all kind of Genesis, Exodus imagery. There's these 12 stars that seem to represent the, the 12 tribes. And this woman clothed with them, and she's about to give birth. And there's this dragon serpent that's just waiting at the end of the birth canal, wanting to kill the child as it's, as it's born. And then the, the, but, but he can't. He can't do that. Uh, it's, it's a male child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And then it talks about that woman fleeing, may represent Israel or God's people, fleeing the serpent into the wilderness. And there's Exodus imagery there. But the, the main point, you know, trying to figure out all those details can kind of confuse you. The main point is Satan cannot and will not destroy Israel or her Messiah. He, Jesus, is going to defeat him at the, at the cross, and he's going to ultimately finish the job at the end. So Jesus wins. And in Revelation 20, that serpent is chained like a slave for a thousand years and then is afflicted in a lake of fire forever. And so go back to Exodus 1, but that is some biblical theology behind this diabolical command to wait, to see if the the woman gives birth to a male child, and if so, destroy that life. This is part of that age-old promise. And we could even look at how pharaohs loved serpents. Even you've seen their symbol and their crown was actually a serpent. It was a cobra raised up. And, and we'll see later in the story serpent staffs and black magic and, and occult idolatry that they had given themselves to. And we can also see how men who are racist and anti-Semitic are actually satanic. And we'll see more of that as we go. But what we need to see at the end here is these women resist the serpent crown of Egypt, and the enmity between him and God's children. Look at Exodus 1, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded him, commanded them, but let the male children live. God's unstoppable promise continues. And will continue that story next time. This should encourage us to know that we have, as our Lord and Savior, the one who promises, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as the church is built and grows in the book of Acts, it uses a lot of the same language. We don't have time to look at all those right now. It grew, it multiplied, and all of that. It was fruitful. We're called to be fruitful, but this needs to encourage us as things seem to be getting worse. It seems like darkness is is growing and increasing in our our world as well. We need to remember we have a promise-keeping Lord who is with us and who wins. And he not only wins in the end, he is with us to the end with his church. And so we'll look more at these women next time and and three more women in chapter 2 who God uses to defeat this sinful king and his demonic plan. But we need to look at the Savior as we go. As verse 11 says, they afflicted his Jewish people with heavy burdens. There's this promise later in Isaiah that there would be one who would come who would bear burdens. He would be afflicted. He would actually take those very burdens. He takes that same language. He would receive stripes like a slave on his back, but his stripes would actually heal us. By his stripes, we would be healed. He would be bruised and wounded for our sins as a substitute. And he would die, but then he would rise. And Isaiah 53 says, then he would see his seed. He would see his offspring. He would see you if you're in Christ. You're part of that seed and that offspring. And he died to redeem He came for the oppressed and the depressed. He came for sufferers and strugglers who will look to him in faith. There's nothing you're going through that he hasn't also in Jesus here on earth gone through and knows in a deeper way. He is that sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to have people turn away from him. He knows what it's like to have people deeply hurt him. He he knows all the struggles that we might Go through, and yet he promises to you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There's nothing that can separate you from my love. And he promises to be with us. 
to the end. He says in the Gospels, my burden is light. Come unto me. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And, and, and we're not laboring and heavy laden like these, these Egyptians, but sin can be unbearably wearisome and, and, and laborious. And he says, whatever it is, come to me. Unlike that ruthless Pharaoh, Jesus says, I will give you rest. There's, there's rest in, in me. He says, if you come to me, those sinners say, come, let us. But the Savior says, come unto me. And he promises, the one who comes unto me. That's in true, humble, saving faith. I will not cast out. If you come humbly before you, before him, and come knowing that Jesus said even hatred in your heart makes you a murderer at heart. We all need his grace. It's not just evil people from history. We have evil in our heart apart from Christ. We need to come to the Savior who is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse those who confess and who come in humble, repentant faith. He promises. One of the most common promises in the New Testament is eternal life. This is what he promised us, eternal life. There's forgiveness, he promises. There's freedom, he promises. If you come in true saving faith, the New Testament says all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, Peter says. And so let me just close with what Hebrews says of Christ. In Christ, it's much more excellent, he says, than the old covenant because it's enacted on better promises. He says Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So let us hold fast the confession of faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Our faithful and merciful God, we thank you for those words. And we thank you for what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, let us, incur, let us consider how we might stir one another towards love and good deeds, encourage one another, not give up meeting together. So Lord, I pray that you would Move us as we look to you to also look out to those around us who need encouragement and then to look to the world who needs this Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.